0: In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11.
1: Well, we're going to continue our exploration of the epistle to the Philippians, and whenever we undertake a study of the Word of God, we want to do it with the Holy Spirit, so let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this incredible servant Paul and this intimate epistle. We pray, Father, that you would just open it to our hearts and lives that we might grow and and apprehend that which you have here for us as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our coming King indeed. Amen. So we're in the... Epistle of the Philippians, and we're going to take the first part of chapter 2, and we'll split our study of chapter 2 in two parts, and you'll see why as we get into it here. But uh, many consider the, pas- the coming passage as the most sublime mystery in Scripture, so be prepared for that. But before we get into that, we want to talk a little bit about others, the others around us. And the last four verses of the previous session chapter 1, and the opening verses of chapter 2, Paul focuses on the relationships among the believers themselves. So we'll pick up the last couple of verses from the last time to get in step here. Verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul said, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And remember, we emphasize privilege implies responsibility. And this term conversation is widely misunderstood. It's not as simple as simply an old-fashioned concept here. Conversation was employed by our ancestors as a word of far wider scope than is generally suggested today. It meant not only talk, conversation, but included our entire behavior. In fact our whole manner of life but the translation difficulties go even a little deeper. For the, the NIV for example uses six words to translate this. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy is really the, uh, the embracing thought here. The actual Greek word there is polititomai which is based on the noun meaning a city like polis. It actually refers to citizenship In the classical age, the polis was the largest political unit that the Greek belonged to, and it belonged to it as sort of we belong to a country. And in his culture, it was the biggest thing in his life. The verb means to conduct oneself worthily as a citizen of a city-state. And we got a taste of that when we reviewed in the first session, uh, uh, Acts 16. You may recall in Acts 16, verse 20, when they accused him, they said, "...they brought them out to the magistrates, saying, these men being Jews." Do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. Again, calling their way of life as their as, as their guide here. Well we, however, have our citizenship in heaven. That's what Paul will develop in the third chapter of this epistle. He say, From whence also we look for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be a citizen of heaven, like Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 11, that was emphasized. By faith Abraham sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles, that is tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Again, we see Paul dwell both in Hebrews as well as Philippians, this concept of the, the political franchise as a metaphor of what he's trying to get across. The emphasis here is to stand together, one mind and one purpose, of course. And the Christians at Philippi knew what it meant to stand fast as Romans at the frontiers of the Roman world. And of course, some Christians today just wash their hands of all involvement in the community and national life. But no one looked more earnestly for the return of the Lord than Paul, but it was preeminently Paul who set with all the enthusiasm he could muster to claim the world for Christ. and We should also. And again, I like East Stanley Jones's quote here. The early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But rather with, in delight they say, look what has come to the world. And uh, then Philippians started to close in verse 28. And, on, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. The battle is joined and there will be no persecution. And the word perdition there is actually uh, refers to these unholy adversaries who read their own doom in the, uh, 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 in the happy fellowship of saints of God and see it in the proof of his, the Lord's final words there, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that, of course, is often misunderstood. It's not the assembly of God that is the city besieged, rather it is hell or Hades that is the realm of the force, uh, forces of darkness that's besieged by the forces of light it is the force of light who are carrying on an offensive warfare, not defensive. And it is, them to the, it is to them that the promise is given that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's what the word perdition referred to there. Anyway, the closing verses were for unto use. It is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me, now here to be in me. And as I Summarized last time, if you squeeze an orange, you get orange juice. If you squeeze a lemon, you get lemon juice. If you squeeze a Christian, you should get Christ. And so now in this session, we're going to look at the remedies for ourselves. We need to develop a low opinion of ourselves, and we need to have a better opinion of others, and we need to possess the mind of Christ. And what do we mean by the mind of Christ? That's what's forthcoming in, when we get to the kenosis. But in any case, it's a matter of unity, and it is a necessity in time of war. So we're going to indulge in what's one of the most uh, highly thought of passages in in the New Testament, the kenosis. That'll be verses 5 to 11. But first of all, we've got a few verses to get through here on others. So Paul opens up the second chapter. He says, If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. The big word here is the word if. It's actually the intensive form. It's There's four conditions in Greek. This is the since. Since there be therefore any consolation Christ. And there are four pillars then of Christian unity. As it would be according to the ISV. First, because there is encouragement. Because there is comfort of love. Because there is fellowship in the spirit. Because there is any compassion and sympathy of God. The word bowels, of course, in the King James, it uh, it means the heart, uh, the guts, if you we might say, and we re, they were regarded as the seat of the more violent passions, such as anger and love, but by the Hebrews as the seat of the tenderer affections, especially kindness, benevolence, compassion, and so forth. Hence, our, we use the term heart, tender mercies and affections, and so forth. But we're always tempted to divisiveness in the ways, in ways that injure our witness. And so he goes uh, The next one was in, uh, in the second part there was encouragement Jesus prayed in John 17 that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that thou hast sent me and so see some take this to refer only to the spiritual unity that all believers possess regardless of actual deeds and feelings yet There is a unity that the world can see and on the basis of which people can come to believe in Jesus. This unity must be expressed in deeds, gestures, and speech. The way we think about, talk to, and act with other Christians and so forth. The second one was love. Christians have a duty to see more than another Christian's faults. Our love is actually to be an outpouring of His love through us as we are transformed by the indwelling presence of His Spirit. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John 13. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And that leaves no room for any qualification. And uh, as you probably know, our, our book, my, my wife and I, the book uh, The Way of Agape is, really focuses on the practical application of this very area. So we'll keep moving here. And then Christian fellowship, not merely human fellowship based on common interests, a fellowship created by God. Because by grace we have made, been made mutually dependent members of, the, of Christ's body. And in 1 John 1, uh, John says that in his epistle He says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So that fellowship is a very different thing than we think of in terms of human fellowship. And then the fourth of those items was mercy of compassion. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So if we've been delivered from the fires of hell by the mercies of God, how can we fail to show compassion to those who also confess Christ's name, even though they may have offended us or disagreed with our interpretation of Scripture? Thus, we get to the second verse, where Paul says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. There again, that call to unity there. And that's exactly what John 13 says By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye have love one to another. That's the badge, that's the identity. Which reminds me of something I remember when I was in Boy Scouts. I had a uh, uh, one of the leaders had a sign over his desk at home that said, I'm third. That's all it said, just a hang on this thing. I'm third. And when he find, uh, asked him what that's really all about, and he pointed out, well, it's, uh, it, it, uh, God is first, others are second, I'm third. It was his way of reminding himself of his order. When God first, others second, I'm third. I've never forgotten that. You know, it's, ev- it's very evident that Christians will not see eye to eye on all points. We're all influenced by habits, by environment, by education, and by the measure of intellectual and spiritual apprehension to which we've attained. It is impossible to find any number of people who look at everything from the same viewpoint. And yet, Paul gets to verse 3 and 4 here. He says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And that same thing he echoes in Galatians uh, 6 bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And in Romans 12, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one uh, uh, another. So Paul admonishes the Christians to consider others better than ourselves and to look to the interests of others. He was actually carrying them to the frontier of the great war being waged between the powers of light and darkness. And uh The real preamble to really getting into all this would be to really understand the source of evil, and the fall of Satan, and your two references for that, of course, are Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, and that's a study. I don't want to derail this by going down that path, but in your notes, you might note that and deal with it here, because we're now going to enter the passage that's called the kenosis, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, and some people regard this as the ultimate example. The word kenosis comes from the Greek. It's often rendered emptied himself or divested himself or made himself of no reputation as it echoes in here. And the passage of uh, Philippians 2 verses 5 to 11 is the New Testament equivalent of a prophecy that's found in Psalm 110 verse 1. And uh, where the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And this verse is quoted uh, directly or indirectly 27 times in the New Testament, and it was the verse that Jesus used to confound the Pharisees. And I can't resist uh, inserting that here. And uh, it uh, let's take a look at Psalm 110. The verse one is quoted 25 times in the New Testament, and it is Hebrews. The Epistle of Hebrews have 10 quotes and allusions uh, alone to this verse. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, the the interesting context of this in Matthew 22 is we had three groups of people uh, uh, questioning Christ. The Herodians, that's the political party that tried to trap him by forcing him to make a political statement that would mark him as a traitor to Rome, and that failed. Then the Sadducees took a shot at this. That That was the liberal religious party, tried to trap him with a ridiculous question regarding the Mosaic law, and that failed. Then the Pharisees took a shot at this. They were the, the ultra conservatives. They tried to trap him, and Jesus' answer puzzled the Pharisees. So he, uh, they huddled again to plan a further attack. Jesus then asked them a question. And while they're gathered together, Jesus asked them, This is Matthew 22, starting at verse 41, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, what, son of David? He said to him, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And uh, that's, of course, an echo of 2 Samuel 7 and also Psalm 78 and Micah 5 2, that, that whole concept. And in fact, even in the book of Proverbs, it says, Who hath ascended up into heaven or ascended? Who hath gathered wind in his feast? Who hath, gathered, uh, hath bound the waters in the garment? Who hath established the ends of the earth? These are all echoes of God in the Psalms. Then we hear says, What is his name? And what is his son's name that thou canst tell? This is all brought up really in this thing, in this uh, thing here. And I love the way Matthew uh, Matthew four twenty two ends. It says, And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. <laughs> I love that. The question is, what was what were they stumbling over? Well, if you look at this passage in the Hebrew, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. The word yod the, the name of the, the, the covenant name of God is there. But the word that's following that is Adonai. And uh, what's interesting about it is the little yot that is at the end of Adonai. That yot makes that word possessive. That's where the Lord said unto, My Lord. And that was the part that the lawyers couldn't uh, unravel or deal with. And that, of course, is, was the whole point here. And it, the, the whole argument, the whole ability of the Lord to put them to confusion hangs on this little thing called a yod. And you may recall Matthew 5, Jesus says, Think not that I've come to destroy the Torah or the prophets, I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one yod or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now a yod, or yod, is, uh, uh, is the smallest of the 22 Hebrew letters. You and I would mistake it for an apostrophe or a blemish on the paper. A tittle is the little decorative hook on some of the letters. That one yod or one tittle is the equivalent of our saying, not the dotting of an I or the crossing of a T shall pass from the law. So it's a call to take the text very, very strictly, and it's interesting in the subtlety of those strictures. He put the lawyers to confusion, so I love that. But uh, anyway, let's get back to the great parabola, the kenosis. The passage in Philippians 2 5 through 11 is among the most glorious sections of the New Testament, and this carries the descent of the Lord Jesus Christ from the highest position in the entire universe down to the death of the cross, then up again to see him seated once more on the throne of his glory before which every knee shall bow. So it's the great parabola, the descent. And then the peak. And uh, so in these few verses, we're going to sweep from Christ's life from eternity past all the way through to eternity future. And we're going to be admitted to the breathtaking purposes of God in human salvation. Wow. So they teach the divinity of Christ, his pre-existence, his equality with God the Father, his incarnation and true humanity, and his voluntary death on the cross, and the certainty of his ultimate triumph over evil. And of course, the permanence of his subsequent reign. That's a sweep. You can't find a a bigger sweep anywhere in the scripture, all of these few verses. Now some scholars attempt to dismiss the distinct doctrines of Christianity as late developments in the history of a historically conditioned and evolving church. That's utter nonsense. There was no evolution of these doctrines. There have been attempts to clarify them and advances toward a full understanding of their significance, of course. But let's just take a look at Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's the way it's rendered in the King James. So the first view we have of Jesus is in reference to his pre-incarnate state in the form of God and as God's equal. Okay. And we find that in in, uh, the Gospel of John. The first four verses that open up his Gospel. It says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And uh, in him him was life, and the life was in the light of men. We find the same echoes when Jesus is uh, praying to the Father in John 17. He says, Oh, now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Phillips has an interesting paraphrase of that. He says, Let Christ Jesus be your example as to what your attitude would be, for he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal. That's the way he renders the the agnosis there. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist, or held together. That's the way Paul uh, echoes this in Colossians, the Colossians, first chapter. Another parallel passage of the same thing, it, 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 it speaks of uh, Hebrews 11. Excuse me, Hebrews 1. God, who at sundry times and divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So again, we have these parallel passages to his glory. See, Jesus cannot be understood on the basis of his earthly life alone. He is a man, but he's also God. And that's, uh, in my mind, uh, one of the tragedies. Mel Gibson's book, The Passion, did a marvelous job in many ways. I think it is a, a remarkable work in many ways, but it has two problems. One, it doesn't get across who he was not just a great teacher, a great example. No, no, no. God himself. And the second thing it does, it creates the impression that the cross was a tragedy. You know, it was an achievement. A fulfillment of plans that were laid down before the foundation of the world. No, we're dealing here with God. There are two key words in this passage. One is morphe, which points both to the outward, uh, outward to the shape of an object and inward to to indicate things that cannot be detected on the surface. And the other word that's in this passage is isos, which is equal such as an isomer, or a, you know, a molecule having a slightly different structure from another molecule, but being identical with it in terms of chemical elements and so forth, and weight. Or isomorph, having the same form, or isometric, and equal. That's where the isos gets, means equivalent, equal. And uh, these phrases slash across any lesser confessions of Christ's deity. We're speaking of the unique and eternal Godhead here. And it also had, it deals with the glory of God. Jesus says, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That was in John 17 in this intimate prayer between Jesus and the Father. These verses highlight four aspects. Jesus possessed a glory before the incarnation. This glory was God's glory. He did not have it after the incarnation. And there is a sense in which he did possess it while on earth, for he revealed it by finishing the work which the Father gave him to do. In the early uh, years of the Greek language of Homer and Herodotus, there was a Greek verb called dekeo, which, from from which the Greek noun for glory, doxa, sprang, meaning to appear or to seem. The noun that came from it means, meant opinion, just like orthodox or heterodox or paradox. In time, the verb w- was used only for having a good opinion about some person. The noun came to mean the, like the praise or honor due someone uh, for whom a, a good opinion was held. But it's a, it's a, it is in this sense that Psalm 24 speaks of God as the king of glory. But the understanding of God's glory was reinforced in the English language by the word which means almost the same thing, the Anglo-Saxon word called worth, and it refers to the intrinsic character. And consequently, when people are engaged in praising God, they are acknowledging His worthship. But we drop the difficult consonants, and this becomes the word worship. Philologically, the worship of God, the praise of God, and the giving of glory to God, are identical. And, uh, but that also leads us to the term Shekinah. along this conception, there's an entirely different meaning of the word glory, which entered the Greek language later from its contact with the Hebrew culture. It is the idea of light or splendor, which is found in the Greek only after the Septuagint uh, translation of the Old Testament was made. We do get an echo of it in Moses, in in, 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 in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, deals with this. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away? There again, we have that glory in the Shekinah sense here.
0: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.